You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananan, Craig, Kenway, Toves, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Deck, Redbeard, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course our quartermasters, Hunter, Samuel, and Adam. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. We spent a lot of last time talking about ideas, concepts essential to the world of the pirates. Those ideas were threefold. First was the hierarchy, an amalgamation of superstitions and customs and laws that govern the life of men at sea. I called it the rule of the sea. Second was the distribution of justice, which will concern us today. That was a tradition particular to pirates in which a captured ship's officers were judged. Were they found to be cruel or incompetent, they could face anything from keel-hauling to marooning, among many lesser punishments. And then I raised a question, a question that I neglected to answer. When does someone stop being a colonial subject and start being a citizen beholden to a foreign power? When does a citizen of colonial Mexico stop being Spanish and start being Mexican? Now, there's no definitive answer to that question, but I wanted to introduce that before we discuss the hierarchy. However, today we're going to explore that question in a little bit more depth. Today we're talking about a host of Spanish subjects, colonials, provincials, who were facing that very question. Were they loyal Spaniards, or were they instead Mexicans, Peruvians, or Panamanians, or Filipinos? And they're going to be presented with that question by a crew of dangerous English buccaneers. This is episode 135, The Distribution of Justice. To begin, let's refresh exactly where we are and what is happening. We're off the northern coast of Capones Island, in the Philippines, in a shipping lane bound for Manila. The date is March 4th, 1687. Right now it's about 7 or 8 in the evening. The pirate ship Signet has captured three ships that day. First, a small sampan, the personal craft of Don Arsaga, carrying a few valuable goods, but in small quantities. 
Then there's a bark carrying rice with fifty or so sailors on board, and the single-deck frigate Aranzazu with twenty-five mariners and a cargo of cotton and iron. Now we already know the makeup of the Signet's crew. John Reed as captain, Josiah Teat, the ship's master, Henry Moore, quartermaster, and William Dampier as navigator. But they aren't the focus of today's episode, beyond their role in taking prisoners. William Dampier mentions the taking of these ships, but only in passing, so he's no help. Instead, we're going to focus on the captured sailors themselves. We're able to do so because we have several other sources from which to draw. There was the testimony of a man named Assam, a Malay pirate who joined up with the crew of Signet. There's also the testimony of Bartolome Luis, a sailor who was captured back in Mexico and was there that day. And there are other testimonies, a few of them given by Englishmen, which are relevant here, and I am using them, but I'm not going to tell you about them. At least not yet. That would give the story away. But then, perhaps most importantly, there is the story told by the Spanish captain of Aranzazu. He was kind enough to write down his experiences, but he did so only after being captured carrying a wealth in English materials on board a stolen ship. And really, he's the focus of our episode. So let's begin with the story of Aranzazu's captain. His confession, or maybe his memoir, was until recently regarded as a fiction. These days, that opinion has been revised. It was not just some story invented by a clever author using a piratical pen name. We know that Daniel Defoe did that sort of thing, but this memoir appears to be at least a little true. However, to find that truth, we need to sift through his lies. The tale begins, quote, my name is Alonzo Ramirez, and my native land is the city of San Juan in Puerto Rico, the capital of the island which separates the realms of the Atlantic Ocean from those of the Gulf of Mexico. It is celebrated as a stopping point for its delightful waters, which refresh those who, thirsty for new Spain, voyage from the old in search of the new. End quote. We need to take everything this guy has to say with a huge grain of salt. Even his name, Alonzo Ramirez, which is how we will refer to him, but even that might be a lie. Probably is a lie, in fact. However, he goes on to describe the virtues of Puerto Rico in some detail, before bemoaning the island's current poverty. That's what brought his father, Lucas de Villanueva, to Puerto Rico from Spain. His mother, on the other hand, Ana Ramirez, was a native-born mestizo woman. But that does bring up our initial question. She was the child of a white Spaniard and a Native American. That means that Alonzo himself had a little Native American blood. Alonzo never saw Spain. All he had were tales from his distant and often absent father. Ana Ramirez, on the other hand, had other tales tales that had been passed down through generations, through her own mother and grandmother, about Puerto Rico, about Alonzo's home. He had tales from his native ancestors that had lived there for centuries. And I wonder, growing up, just how Spanish young Alonzo felt. By twelve, he decided to leave home 
and the poverty there to find his fortune at sea. He writes, quote, I took an opportunity in the shape of a flyboat belonging to Capitan Juan del Corco, Juan of the Cork, which was to sail from our port bound for La Habana in that year of 1675. It did not seem a burdensome occupation, considering that I was finally living in liberty. Perhaps it presaged future calamities that I began my search for fortune by taking to the sea on a cork. End quote. You know how people sometimes say they wished that they could live in this or that historical era? You know, ooh, I wish I was a Roman, or I wish I lived in Victorian London, or maybe some of you have thought about being a pirate. It's always a bad idea, in every case. There's no plumbing most of the time. You have to deal with plague and a lack of modern medicine. There's usually going to be horrific oppression of one kind or another. Leeches. You have to deal with leeches. But worst of all, you have to deal with jokes like that. But Ramirez made it on his little cork and landed at Havana, then moved on to San Juan de Ulua. You may remember that as the town at which Sir Francis Drake and John Hawkins were betrayed by the Spanish, where they were attacked for selling stolen human cargo. But Ramirez didn't stay there long. He took work on a mule train that was headed toward Mexico City. At Mexico City, though, life was difficult. He very nearly starved to death, and he was rebuffed, looking for employment, by a respectable relative who wanted nothing to do with rabble like Ramirez. He kicked him out. But finally he did find work. He got a job on a merchant train, really just him and the merchant, who were going to be taking goods from Mexico City down south to buy vanilla and cocoa and cotton and cochineal. It was a good enough job, but his boss, an elderly man, died en route. However, Ramirez finished the job and returned to Mexico City with both the body and all of the goods. The merchant's family was appreciative of this, and that led to a marriage with Francisca Xavier, a prosperous young woman who was related to the former bishop of Mexico City. Unfortunately, Francisca died in childbirth along with their child, and Ramirez despaired. I should note that he appears to have despaired more for his sudden drop in social station than for the loss of his loving wife. Following her death, he booked passage from Acapulco to Manila on board the Santa Rosa. He writes, quote, I became disabused of the notion that I would ever ascend beyond the level of my social sphere, although I still resented that many men with fewer merits were able to reach the highest. I gave up on my plans. There is much abundance in these islands, especially offered by Manila. Trade is ordinarily of the high seas sort. Through this occupation, I not only trafficked in commerce, but also saw many cities and ports in the East Indies. End quote. So he traveled to the Philippines, where he took job as a merchant at sea. But he's a little vague about all of that, about his employment and his voyage to Asia. And that's kind of odd. Consider the many details and names he's given us so far. We know about his mother and father. He gave us a great description of Puerto Rico. We know the names of three of his bosses, and we know about the goods that he traded for on that fateful mission. 
And remember, this isn't a memoir of his entire life. This is a story about how he was captured by pirates. So why do we know so much about his early life, but virtually nothing about his time in the Philippines? Note how he takes pains to mention his disillusionment with Spanish society, his frustration with a social order that kept people like him, people who had merit but of non-European ancestry, from advancing in society. You might remember those exact same frustrations in the story of Diego the Mulatto. That was what led him to piracy some 40 years earlier. They were similar to those of the Spanish-Philippine-Malay pirate Assam, who was currently on board the Signet. All three of them were Spanish subjects who grew so tired of the restrictive social system in Spanish lands that they decided to turn against their home nation to piracy in a bid for revenge. Or rather, Ramirez wasn't a pirate, he was just a good God-fearing merchant, but that brings us up to date with his version of the story, until that one fateful mission on which Alonzo Ramirez and his ship Aranzazu were captured by the pirates on board Signet. Ramirez gives a relation of the distribution of justice. He writes, quote, Knowing that I commanded the vessel they had just captured, they transferred me onto the larger of their two ships, to which their captain welcomed me with decisive to which their captain welcomed me with deceitful amiability. The very first words he uttered were a promise of freedom if I revealed to him the names of the wealthiest places on these islands. End quote. Ramirez decided to lie to who he thought was the captain of the pirates. He told his interrogator that he was new to the region and knew nothing. But he's also lying to us here. All of the other sources which mention this at all contradict Ramirez, and they also suggest that either he or Dampier was lying later on. It appears that Ramirez was not the captain of Aranzazu, nor was he first questioned. What was he, then? A middling officer, maybe a bosun, maybe even lower. But I picture him as sort of a Long John Silver character a crewman minding his own business throughout the day, but then come the hours after dark. Once the sun set, he spent his time whispering secret plans to certain like-minded members of the crew, plans to take the ship by force, to kill the officers, and to sail out as marauders, vengeful against anyone and everyone who had ever wronged them. Now all of that, not the Long John Silver stuff, but the him not being captain stuff, comes from those later testimonies. They listed a different captain for the Aranzazu, but one of them does suggest that Ramirez belonged to a sect within the crew which was rambunctious. The second contradiction, and this is really confusing stuff, regards the crew of Signet. Ramirez immediately gets all of the names wrong. Now that could be explained if the crew was using aliases, which isn't a bad plan should you be captured later on, but it is highly frustrating for our purposes. However, that's the less likely option. The more likely answer to this question involves a lot of very deep factors, 
differences between Spanish and English naval customs and naming conventions, as well as some linguistic quirks that are particular to late 17th century Spanish. I'm not going to get into all of that. I don't understand most of that. I will point out the possibility that it could have been Ramirez just lying to protect his comrades-in-arms much later on. He could have been purposefully confusing the capture of his ship with that of the rice bark. There are some chroniclers who argue that there was no other rice bark, and Ramirez was merely lying about being the captain of a third ship, that the rice bark was in fact the Aranzazu. But that's difficult to discern. For now we should move on with Ramirez's version of events. We know pretty conclusively that he was on board the Signet, and that at one point, one of the pirates did get around to questioning him. That was the distribution of justice. Sadly, for our exciting narrative, this particular distribution was less than a brutal retribution on the high seas. The crews of all three vessels were interrogated, but they had very little of interest to say. They warned that Manila was too well defended for the pirates, and they did mention that a treasure ship, a Manila galleon, was sailing out from Manila Harbor, but it was empty. It was going to be picking stuff up. It wouldn't become a valuable target for several months yet. None of them had any particular horrors to recount about the officers on board, so there was really very little distribution of justice. For the time being, though, the pirates had to deal with a much more pressing situation. They had a ship full of captives. They had previously burned the sampan, but what were they going to do with the rice bark and the frigate Aranzazu? Were the situation a little bit different, they might have just let them go, with their crews intact. But that wasn't an option here. Both ships would immediately rush to the nearest city, probably Manila, and they would raise the alarm, which would raise a fleet which would come out and kill the pirates. They needed at least a little time to get away. Instead of letting them go, after a few hours questioning and debate, the pirates came up with a plan. First of all, they unloaded all of the guns and the tools from the bark. Some of it they loaded onto the signet. The rest they loaded onto Aranzazu. Then the pirates set to disposing of their captives, in, you know, the most humane way available to them they decided to ferry prisoners over to the shores of a nearby island. The Arsaga family, as well as his sailors, and the whole crew of that rice bark were ferried over to shore. Not only them, but most if not all of the Spanish captives taken in Peru and Panama and Mexico. And then the pirates did something odd. They left these Spaniards on shore with tools and water and nearly all of the rice. They took some to refill their stores, but most of it they left with these people on shore. They weren't being marooned. They weren't sentenced to a slow starvation. They were left ashore, but they had food and water. And they were in, and this is key, they were in the busiest shipping lane in the region. In a few days' time, a ship would find them, and these poor captives could return home safe and sound and well-fed with an exciting tale of having been captured by pirates. They even left the bark mostly intact, 
Yeah, they stripped her of sail and ropes, and eventually they cut her adrift, but both the ship and her crew were eventually found and put back to work. This wasn't a punishment. This was merely the pirates' solution to get all of their Spanish prisoners out of their hair, make sure they didn't have to feed them, and get out of there without anybody being the wiser, for at least a few days. I know this isn't the bloodthirsty yarn that we might be hoping for, but honestly, we need to get used to that. Pirates were people. They hated seeing women and children and their fellow mariners suffer, you know, most of them at least. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. But what happened to the Aranzazu and her crew? Let us assume that Ramirez was telling the truth. The truth about the Aranzazu carrying cotton and iron on an errand for the governor. Let us assume that Ramirez was not in fact a pirate on his own ship who happened to cross the signet here in this busy shipping lane. We'll assume that for the moment at least. And let us even assume that he was not the Spanish Long John Silver and was, in fact, the captain of Aranzazu. The captain, for whatever reason, says nothing of the peaceful transport of Spanish civilians safely to shore with plenty of food. The story of a regional dignitary, Arsaga, the story of his family, and the tale of reputable sailors on board the rice bark all confirm that part of the story, but Ramirez leaves it out. Instead, this reputable captain, who was caught with a stolen ship carrying stolen goods only after his ship was wrecked on the coast of the Yucatan, bemoans his terrible fate, his fate at the hands of the pirates. In his totally believable story, we get all of the horrific bloodshed and menace that we might crave in a good pirate tale. Ramirez and his men were tortured by the bloodthirsty, nefarious, English, Protestant, vile, heathen barbarians. 
At one point, when a particularly recalcitrant prisoner refused to give out even his name, a good, brave, loyal, honest Spanish Catholic, after he kept his mouth shut, the pirates pulled their sabers. They advanced on the prisoner and cut him limb from limb. Literally, they chopped him into bits. Imagine this pack of wild pirates tearing at this poor soul's clothes, snarling and chopping and slicing while blood and gore fly into the air. Then, their prize disassembled, the pirates turned to the other prisoners. They were literally dripping in what had formerly been inside their dear beloved friend, and then the pirates began to feast. Each of the pirates, with his own slice of the poor Spaniard, began to gnaw and bite and chew the raw flesh and swallow. You can hardly imagine the terror and the disgust and the shock and one could understand in those circumstances, in the face of this kind of horrific barbarity, why the crew of Aranzazu, who had for some reason that we are not given been chosen for tonight's menu rather than set ashore alongside the other prisoners, why they were forced to meekly comply and join the pirates of the signet. Of course, all of that is true. That definitely happened. Not a word of it happens to have been falsified by Ramirez or made up by me. Yep, hard historical fact, all of that. I mean, you can see why this was assumed to have been a complete fiction for so long. It was written years after the fact in Mexico City. None of the names are right. None of them are verifiable to pirates that were operating in the region. And then you have stuff like that tale of cannibalism that's just so over the top that it beggars belief. However, glimmers of truth do begin to pepper the narrative from here on out. Only a few of them, but enough that historians now generally agree that this is at least based on true events. Kind of like how you see a horror movie based on true events that has nothing to do with the actual events, but there's something there, some real nugget of truth. And from here, we're going to deviate from the story of the Signet. We're going to stick close by the story of Alonzo Ramirez. Now, their stories are intertwined. After this act of horrific barbarity, the crew of Aranzazu joined up with the crew of Signet. Whether they did so due to a history or intent of piracy, or due to a wee bit of cannibalism, they joined. And their tale... The tale of the signet from here on out is a long story. It's too long for today's episode. And I thought about just blending the crew of Aranzazu into the tale, and they will be there for a while, but I want to finish Alonzo's story. I want to get to the root of those ideas that I brought up last time. I mean, it makes sense that Captain John Reed and the crew of signet would free their other captives. It was the best solution to their problems. Whether or not the crew of the Aranzazu came willingly or were captured, the pirates had mouths to feed. They had 80 or 90 crewmen already, along with another 12 or 15 from the Malay pirates. They had to get rid of some of their prisoners. But now they had an additional 25 sailors, which leads to about a crew of 130. And that's a bit much for the signet. They could have carried it on board, but it would have been a little cramped. 
However, all of a sudden this nice new single-deck frigate, the Aranzazu, fell into their laps. Now Dampier says nothing about taking this ship, but every other source mentions two frigates in the pirate fleet. And we need to suspect everything, Dampier tells us from here on out, because his narrative begins to differ substantially from all of our other sources. This is probably due to Dampier covering his own tracks, legally speaking. The Aranzazu was crewed by pirates from among the Signet, possibly by members almost exclusively of her former crew, Ramirez and all of the rest. But it appears, and this is disputed still, that William Dampier was given command of the vessel. We'll look at that in significantly more depth next time, but it does kind of make sense. He did at least speak very good Spanish. However, we can be sure that Ramirez and his men and the Aranzazu were all together with the signet. Those little nuggets of truth that I mentioned, well, they make that argument pretty conclusively. First of all, Ramirez mentions in passing that the English pirates bragged about their raids on Peru and Panama and Costa Rica. Fairly specifically, though, that's obviously an allusion to the Second Pacific Adventure and their raids on those lands. But even more convincing than that was the story of a Spaniard named Miguel. Miguel de Medina, a Sevillan, but that, you know, kind of diminishes the mystique. Alonso Ramirez calls him only, simply, Miguel. And Ramirez hated this man. However, Miguel was certainly not a fabrication. He was mentioned by Dampier and Ramirez and Assam and Uriarte and nearly everyone else who talked about this story. He was even mentioned by a group of familiar pirates who were operating in the Indian Ocean at the time. Pirates who we have met before, but we have yet to introduce into this tale. But that's how notable he was. Everyone noticed him. And that was due to a very distinct trait in Miguel. He was Spanish, proper Spanish, from Seville, but Miguel was Protestant. You don't meet a lot of Spanish Protestants, even today, even less in the 17th century. Miguel wasn't born Protestant, he was raised a Catholic in Spain, but here on the Signet he was seen many, many times celebrating Anglican Holy Days with the crew. He was a recent convert to Anglicanism, and as are many converts, he was very devout. He was, in fact, seen praying far more often than any of his comrades. However, he got his Anglicanism from the pirates. Miguel was picked up back in Mexico a little over a year ago by the crew of Signet, he might have been captured, but he might have gone willingly. Either way, he took to the marauder's life quickly and with real relish. He was already a sailor, he knew his business, but he embraced piracy even more than most of the other sailors on board. He was one of the most vocal members of that pirate sect back in Mindanao. We're led to believe that he hated Spain. However, we don't have his own thoughts on the matter. We don't know why he hated Spain, if that was even the case. What we do have are the words of Alonso Ramirez. 
Ramirez describes all of the beatings and the forced labor and even some of the scare tactics that the pirates used on board Signet. For example, on one occasion, when the Spanish decided to strike and refused to do any work at all, the pirates took one of their number up on deck. The crew, the Spanish crew down in the hold, began to hear the most terrible sounds from above. There was awful, awful screaming. There were slashing sounds and thuds. And finally, when it grew quiet, blood began to drip through the deck and onto their heads. The pirates told them that their companion was dead and had been thrown into the sea, and that they would continue this practice with each and every last one of them, only they would grow more and more terrible, take longer and longer to kill the Spaniards until they decided to break their strike. So the Spaniards complied. They went back to work. But a few days later, there was their dead friend, unbruised, unbroken, and very much alive. By this point, the pirates had rearranged sleeping arrangements and work schedules so that they couldn't really strike anymore, but Ramirez reaches the conclusion that all of that, all of that terror that they had imagined above, was merely a bit of play-acting. Pirates throwing themselves to the deck and screaming in a Spanish accent in abject terror. And then he suggests the slaughter of a hog. Now that might have been cruel psychological torment, but Ramirez was most upset about the fact that they didn't even get to eat any of the hog. All that they got was rice, gruel, and stale water. Ramirez spends some time about their lack of good food, but then Alonzo Ramirez writes, quote, I suspect that the evil of their manner was increased by a Spaniard in their company, a native of Seville, whose name was Miguel. No intolerable task given to us, no occasion for mistreatment or hunger enforced upon us, no threat to life sent our way ever came without his having had a hand in it. Miguel gloried in how these acts boldly pronounced to the world his godlessness, his abandonment of his native Catholic faith, and his commitment to living a pirate and dying a heretic. End quote. Lopez Lazaro, who wrote an excellent detailed analysis of this whole episode, notes something very interesting about that passage. Lazaro writes, quote, Ramirez told his Mexican audience that perfidious Albion was less to be feared than traitorous Spain. End quote. Looking at it from that point of view, one might begin to suspect that Ramirez was sneaking in a bit of cleverly disguised propaganda to his memoir. After their will was sufficiently broken, Ramirez and his men spent two years in the company of English pirates. There are going to be changes to the roster among those pirates that will concern us later on, but eventually Ramirez and the other Spaniards were returned, via an entirely different pirate ship, to the West Indies. According to his story, for the entirety of those two years, they were forced to work through torture and psychological torment. However, when we look at the construction of his narrative, there's something suspicious there. Ramirez tells us of his time under the pirates relatively briefly. Then he arrives in America. But then a new chapter begins, and he goes back to detail 
all of the horror that he experienced on board the signet. It's almost as though someone, maybe a bishop or a governor there in Mexico, pointed out that there simply wasn't enough in his memoir to exonerate Ramirez. Maybe they told him to flesh out the horrific torture bits, and it's in that chapter, looking back, where he talks about the pantomime slaughter, and the cannibalistic pirates, and about Miguel. I mean, he tells us about a bunch of cannibals that ate someone, a friend of his, and then he goes on to say, I suspect the evil of their manner was increased by a Spaniard. I mean, they just ate a guy. And Miguel is somehow worse than all of that? I mean, maybe. Miguel did abandon the Catholic faith. And maybe in the eyes of a loyal Catholic, that's worse than eating a guy. Or maybe, maybe Ramirez is hinting at his real-life feelings here. Treachery. Treachery is often considered the most egregious sin. In Dante's Inferno, in the ninth and lowest circle of hell, we see all of the traitors, including, notably, Judas Iscariot and Lucifer himself. And then this Puerto Rican, of some Arawak descent, well, he certainly had strong feelings about his mother country, Spain. A country that Ramirez felt, if we listen to his own personal account, had betrayed him a feeling that he shared with Diego Lucifer and Assam, a feeling that was shared by many Spaniards of the day. It's almost as though Ramirez is saying that despite the cannibalism and all of the horrors of these English pirates, somehow Spain is still worse. A clever bit of doublespeak, if that is the case. Those who might find themselves sympathetic to that point of view would likely see what he is saying by reading between the lines, while those who are loyal Spaniards likely wouldn't. But how did Ramirez get there? How did he get to the writing of the manuscript, I mean? Well, he tells us that the pirates, after a couple of years, decided to set him free. At the Windward Islands, they gave him a ship a ship that was large enough to carry all of his men. But that's not all they gave him. They gave him a compass, and an astrolabe, and a Dutch wagoner, and tools, and ropes, and sailcloth, and pitch, and rice, and water, salted beef, raw salt, and a medicine box. Not to mention the sabers, and the muskets, and the pistols, and the powder, and the small shot, and the large shot, and the cannons. And oh yeah, there were the cargo holds that were absolutely filled with stolen iron and tin and bronze, metals straight from the East Indies that could have been sold in Port Royal, or in Petit Guave, or in Tortuga, or Nassau, or Boston. All of which, I might mention, were ports that the pirates who quote-unquote set Ramirez free were going to be visiting in the very near future. Why? Would they let this Spaniard go? Why would they let him have a ship of his own filled with valuable cargo? Why would they give him all of these tools? Why would they give him the weapons? What it looks like to anybody who's not an idiot is that this was a pirate ship complete with all of the implements necessary for piracy as well as the pirated cargo on board. Am I saying that Alonso Ramirez was a pirate? 
yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying, because he so very clearly was, despite his manuscript. But if we combine that truth with his own story, we can construct a pretty reasonable narrative of what happened to bring him to writing that story. Ramirez took part in a big raid, a raid which we will be talking about in the future, and then, like all of the other pirates, ran off to America to hide out. But in America things were different. There were certain tensions between the Spanish and the English and the French that weren't necessarily there in the same fashion in the East Indies. So he had to split up with his pirate brethren. However, on his way to a lightly populated part of the Spanish main, probably the Mosquito Coast, he was spotted by an English fleet out of Jamaica. That's something he says himself. And that led him to flee, which led him into a storm that eventually dashed his ship upon the coast of the Yucatan. At that point, he and his crew disembarked, took their muskets, and marched inland, searching for people. They didn't find anybody, but the following morning, returning to their ship, they found a couple of Native Americans watching the ship. Now, Ramirez and his men surprised the natives. They jumped out with guns drawn, and the natives surrendered. They spoke to them in Spanish, however, and the natives relaxed, and then their boss showed up, the Spaniard who either owned or maybe employed them, to take them into town. Now, it wasn't a large town, but it did have people who could write to the local governor. That governor sent men to collect all of the goods from the ship and make a full accounting, which is why we know about the guns and the astrolabe and the compass and all that. And he sent word of all of that to the Viceroy in Mexico City. The Viceroy sent word that Ramirez and his men and all of the goods should be taken to Mexico City. The Spanish crew under Ramirez was taken in shackles because obviously they're pirates. But the Viceroy was in a quandary here. Were he to prosecute Ramirez, which was the obvious choice, he would have to return the tin and the iron and the bronze. On the other hand, he could have a local bishop convince Ramirez to write up a mostly fictitious rendition of his adventures, a rendition that was filled with enough truths and half-truths to sing as honest, but to absolve himself of any crime. That would allow the governor to claim ignorance as to the source of the metals, to claim them for his own, and to use them in the war. Now this might seem slimy and corrupt, and it was, but it's not outside of the norm of the time. We've seen English governors from Port Royal do this kind of thing all the time, We've seen French governors at Tortuga and Petit Guave do this kind of thing, and we're about to see more of them doing that kind of thing. Because here, in 1689, at almost the end of the tale of Alonso Ramirez, we are at the outbreak of the Nine Years' War in the West Indies. When we talk about the Nine Years' War, we are going to meet Alonso Ramirez and his men, their privateers at this point, we're going to meet them again. And we're also going to see some other old friends, the French and the Dutch privateers Michael André Zoon, Michel de Gramont, and Lauro de Graaf. But before we get to that part of the story, we need to bring the English up to date, 
we need to bring them up to 1689 in the West Indies. The signet is part of that, certainly. Dampier and his lot have quite a road ahead of them before we get there. But we will also be reunited with a number of other names and faces we already know. Next time, though, we're going to return to the deck of the signet, and we're going to continue on with their adventure in the Philippines as they move into all of Southeast Asia. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, everyone who supports the show through our options on the website, everybody who has left us a rating or a review, and everyone who has recommended this show online or in real life. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight